Welcome, everyone, to the Autonomous and Electric Vehicle Summit. We're glad to have you today. This is our second annual summit for autonomous vehicles, electrification, infrastructure, all of the things that go into some of the big changes that we're seeing in the in the trucking and transportation industry. It is a, a great day ahead. We hope that you will enjoy everything that we've put together for you. Uh, my name is Alan Adler. I am the Detroit Bureau Chief for FreightWaves. And many of these topics are things that we write about for our website, FreightWaves.com, on a daily basis. A lot of these things have shown up in previous summits in terms of topics that we'll cover today. We're going to look at hydrogen. We're going to look at autonomy. We're going to look at electrification. But we're going to start out with something that affects all of them, and that is SPACs, the Special Purpose Acquisition Company. Now, it's not getting quite as much attention these days as it did a year ago, but it still is a factor in the growth advancement, perhaps even in some cases failure, of some of the young companies that we've seen co-public. But what we're looking at today and starting with is an opportunity for our keynote today. We're possibly thrilled to welcome back Vince Cubbage. Vince is the is the CEO of uh, Volta Charging, uh, interim CEO of Volta Charging. He's also the head of, uh, the, uh, excuse me, of Tortoise Acquisition. And Tortoise has done two SPACs so far. They brought Hylion Holdings public uh, back in October of 2020. And then they're working on Volta right now. They have a target uh, search underway for a third SPAC. So you can imagine how busy Vince is these days, but we are just positively thrilled and so happy to have him with us. Vince, welcome. Alan, thank you. It's great to be with you. Yeah, we, we have done a lot together over time, Vince, and, uh, you know, Tortoise has been very active. We're watching the progress of Highland. They might be one of the, uh, I don't like winners and losers, but they're certainly showing some signs of success. Their recent acquisition of some technology from, from GE and, and so forth uh, seems to set them on a course for, for some good things. But before we get into any specifics, would you kind of take us through uh, sort of the history of SPACs for some of our audience who doesn't follow this space? Yeah, sure. You know, SPACs are, uh, they certainly have a reputation in part because how frequently they were used recently to bring capital to high growth companies. But really SPACs are nothing more than a group of investors that are led by a sponsor. And those investors and the sponsor are out looking for opportunities to invest in, in really sector plays. And energy transition and decarbonization is certainly one of the most important areas that SPACs are looking to invest in. Uh, look, Alan, you and I share the view it's an unbelievable moment in time. The transition of transportation, the evolution of technology into decarbonization, uh, the many players that are attempting to kind of carve out a, a piece of this business. Uh, it, it's a really highly investable moment. Uh, there are some great examples of winners being made. Uh, unfortunately, there's a number of examples of kind of losers that haven't gotten the job done. But uh, SPACs really play an important role in bringing capital to those market participants, to the operating companies that they merge with. So when we what we've seen is, um, the, you know, SPACs go back a long way with the, the most recent iteration being sort of the 20 to 2020 to 2021. 21 frenzy, um, and I know you'll you'll reference the pandemic and how that affected it, but there was an earlier version of SPACs too, right? Yeah, SPACs have been around a long time. Uh, originally, they were uh, kind of similar structure. We refer to it as kind of SPAC 1.0. Uh, investors would give a sponsor and a sponsor's uh, deal-finding management team money. 
that money in partly would be used to find the deal. And then what was left of the capital would be merged into a private company to bring it into the public markets. It's really a, a form of reverse IPO and kind of pre-funded capital raise. Um, that same principle exists today, except for a, a really a material change in kind of SPAC 2.0, which has been over the last number of years, where the investor's money is set aside. It's put in a trust account. It's protected. It's not used for any of the deal finding. And those investors are relying on the sponsor, in this case, you know, Tortoise Acquisition Corp., to find the deal, to do the due diligence, to uh, make sure it's ready for the public markets, and then uh, really vote on the deal and then make a separate decision at the time of closing around whether they want to be invested in the deal. So a, a SPAC investor, someone that would invest at the SPAC IPO, which might be a year or more, before the opportunity to vote on a merger, which we refer to as the DSPAC, those investors would get a full overview of the business that they're being asked to vote on uh, through a proxy statement, usually a management presentation. Frequently, market participants like research analysts will weigh in. And then after a consideration period in the proxy statement, they'll be asked to vote on it, yes or no, and then they'll be offered a separate choice to stay invested or to exit their investment and get all of their money back through what's known as the right of redemption. That's what's really different on the second iteration of SPACs is the right of redemption. So, so Viz, you, you said that there are some pandemic impacts that affected the second round of, of SPACs or SPAC 2.0. What, what are you referring to? So, Alan, this is something we've talked about before, but you know, kind of what's the cause of, of the SPAC boom of 2020 and 2021? And, you know, why did an industry that, you know, kind of had really 10 to 15, maybe a few dozen IPOs a year, uh, 10 years ago and five years ago, suddenly go to, you know, 2020, there were 248 SPAC IPOs that raised over $83 billion. In 2021, there were 613 SPAC IPOs that raised $162 billion. So, you know, why did 20 and 21 have more SPACs than all of the prior 10 or 15 years combined? Uh, I really attribute that to the pandemic and the travel restrictions and the inability of the regular way process to play out. In a regular way process, a private company hires an investment bank. The investment bank does its due diligence and its, its kind of underwriting preparation and files a registration statement. It takes the company on a roadshow through kind of all of the main cities in the U.S. that have investors interested in investing in that sector. And then at the end of the process, in a traditional IPO, the investment bank would tell them what's the total cumulative level of interest from investors and at what price are they willing to buy shares. Um, that That's really kind of, a, there's a few features of this that are all, all tied together. One is that's the price discovery process. In a traditional IPO, the price is not determined until the very end. An estimate is established early on, but the actual price occurs at the day of pricing, at the very end of the process. And the amount of capital being raised is similarly determined uh, at the very end of the process. But this was all done basically on screens then. It really wasn't done yeah. in, in, board, in, in rooms, right? So if, if investment banks are the inventor of kind of all things are possible, if they were prohibited from traveling and physically meeting with both companies wanting to go public and investors wanting to invest in high-growth new companies, what are they going to do? Uh, one option, which really became the really the seed of the boom, in my opinion, is that they 
used companies like ours who had existing relationships with investors to go public in a very expedited process where a sponsor team like like my, my own would uh, interact with investors that knew us and knew the quality of our underwriting. We would go public really in a virtual roadshow done over Zoom. We would raise the money. That money would be uh, held in trust and a near riskless trade for our IPO investors. And then we would go find the team through our connections, through our industry connections, uh, to really, we would find opportunities to invest with people that we already knew. It took out all of the physical travel. And as an intermediary, as a merger partner, we would come to the investors and say, we found a company that's worthy of your time and your money. And we would explain it to them. We would go through our diligence process, our underwriting process. And we, we could affect all of that through relationships and do most of it virtually. And I think if you look at the 2020 and 2021 SPAC boom, and you overlay that with the March 2020 lockdown that really didn't get released until very late in 2021, uh, the correlation is very high. And uh, I think that explains a lot. Interesting, because in all the stories I've written about SPACs over the months and years, I'm not sure how many times I, I made that connection between the pandemic and the speed with which some of these companies, you know, made it to market. Because as you know uh, very well, there are there were anyway a few less requirements for them uh, than there were for traditional IPOs. You, you've indicated though, Vince, that that there are some bugs that were in the system. Um, I think you used the term "lack of road tests." That's what you told me, and uh, maybe even defective structure. If SPACs were autos, you said we would be recalling them. What do you mean? Yeah, it's it's funny. I, I, it's great that you remember that. You know, I think about. Uh, SPAC as a structure is a very good way to go public. You have experts in the industry like my team identifying the best targets and bringing investors, fundamental investors, that make sense for those targets. A couple of things uh, really got brought into the SPAC boom that were a little unexpected and created some unintended consequences. If you think of kind of a normal flow of funds, traditional investors looking to invest in the sector, you would expect ebbs and flows, but you wouldn't expect you know, the, the tidal wave that really was the 2020 and 2021. The reason, in my opinion, that that capital came is because of the lack of alternatives. There weren't other things to invest in. There was also an awful lot of money pumped into the system by the government in order to keep the economy stable. And so that put money and excess money in the hands of of a lot of market participants that might not have normally looked at this market as one that's interesting. Really, for a SPAC to be successful, the SPAC business to be successful, you need to have a, a balance, a balance in supply of high-quality targets that are ready for the public markets and a supply of high-quality fundamental capital investors who want to invest in that business. And when you get um, anomalies in either side, either there's not enough high-quality companies you could have a, a shift in the intersection and a reduction in kind of the average quality of company. If you have too much capital, then you have competition, and that competition can end up you know, making decisions that, that aren't as fundamentally sound. And I think that's, that's what we saw happen. I was going to say, we saw that happen because obviously when you talk about the money that came in through you know, pandemic relief and so forth, that created a new class of day trader who chased all kinds of interesting, somewhat interesting things. And ultimately, you know, just the air came out, right? I mean, we saw some really, really unintended consequences because of what you said. Maybe not enough adults in the room might be way, enough way to, to, one way to put it. 
Um, let's go to redemption, though, for a minute. And, and I want to understand. Go ahead, Vince. Well, I just, there, there's a, a, a funny observation that was made for me at one of the meetings we had. Not only did kind of all of these new market participants that are already financial investors come in, the SPAC market attracted non-financial investors. Um, one, one of the interesting developments that we were told about is uh, the, the sports gambling crowd was looking for things to bet on and in many ways started kind of joining the day trading community. When you looked at the um, suspension of professional sports and the amount of capital that normally flows into those channels and the market participants in those channels looking for an alternative way to have the same level of activity, but to find kind of a different thing to bet on. Uh, there was a ton of speculation with the SPACs. And when we underwrote deals, we would say to our own investors, you know, we think this is worth 12 or 13 or 15 or 18, maybe. We're buying it at 10. It's a good deal long-term. It certainly needs to execute. It needs to perform. There's all of these risks that are in the way between today and this eventual success. But nowhere would we be saying to our investor group, hey, this is worth 50 or 80 or 100, like you saw some of the the stocks post DSPAC trade. You know, the the, the uh, prices that the, some of these uh, SPACs traded at post announcement of a deal were completely disconnected from the fundamental value of the business as underwritten by the SPAC team. And, so know. if I couldn't bet on the Baltimore, as if I couldn't bet on the Indianapolis Colts, I could I could bet on Nicholas. What you're telling me, right? right? Fair enough. Yeah. yeah, and 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 it happened. We saw it happen, and we saw it happen really with Hylion before before the uh, before the merger was complete. I think it went way high over fifty dollars, mm-hmm. and of course it's kind of crashed back to earth. But not to say that the business is any less. It's just that the enthusiasm and some of the you know, money that was flowing there. Redemptions are tricky, though, because I want to understand, and I think our audience, maybe it's a new concept to some of them, but the redemption part of this is really important to understand. Can you help us here? Sure. The, the uh, you know, the key change for kind of SPAC 2.0 was giving an investor a separate decision on voting the deal up or down and then voting whether to stay invested or not. In the first iteration of SPACs, those, those decisions were linked. If you wanted your money back, you were voting no for the deal. And so if the investors didn't like the deal, the deal wouldn't go forward. In an effort to protect those investors, the rules were changed where the investor could make a decision about the deal moving forward and still retain their right to withdraw from the deal through the right of redemption. And all redemption means that a SPAC IPO investor could say right before the closing of the merger, and the closing of the merger is the SPAC merging with the private company and the resulting next day, the combined businesses trade as one as a public company. So the SPAC investor had the right to redeem right before the closing of the merger. And by redeeming, they reduced the amount of cash that was available to the private company post-closing. And so in instances of very high redemption, particularly when a pipe wasn't involved, the company, the private company that was thinking about taking itself public through a SPAC would end up public with all the obligations of being public and the costs of being public, but without the capital in some cases that they were expecting to, to receive as, as part of the process. So it'd be like doing an IPO and agreeing to all the responsibilities and not actually getting the, the new capital into your business. 
we need to quickly define pipe in the sense that a private, well, you do, yeah. you, you're better at it than I am. I, I often mess it up. <laughs> the right way to think about it is just a private investment and a public equity. So in a SPAC merger, the SPAC has money and trust account, and that trust account is merged with the private company. And whatever's left in the trust account, the, the gross amount of the SPAC minus the redemptions prior to closing, the net amount is in, is is acquired and merged with the private company. It becomes their cash to execute their business plan. And if you go back to this enormous opportunity, there are there's an unimaginable amount of, of work to be done in electrifying the U.S. transportation sector and uh, capital will be needed across you know, all sorts of channels. And those companies that are trying to execute on that very much need the capital. So they rely on a low level of redemption in order to to receive the money they're expecting out of the, the trust account. Down the, the other way to make sure they have money. I'm sorry, I'll well, interrupt you. No, I was going to say, down the road, uh, you know, we're looking at companies that might be in the autonomous space, which is farther off than electrification, clearly, uh, both in terms of investment and and the, the year in which it'll really happen. But we saw some of those get really hammered on the redemption side. Mm-hmm. But there was some th- other things that you talked about, some maybe some hedge fund activity and things like that. Can you, I mean, it, I get that gets in the bad actor department. It's a, it's a good question. I, um, I think that most participants in the SPAC market are just financially motivated. So they're not good or bad. They're financially motivated and they're very smart investors and, and they understand optionality in a deal. If, you know, I was thinking about, I, I didn't quite get to the answer of your question on pipe. Pipe is really private money coming in that's not subject to redemption. So if you had money in trust minus redemption as net money, you could make sure, you could guarantee the private company a minimum level of cash. And that features usually a requirement in, in SPAC mergers that there's a certain amount of minimum cash left at the end right at closing so that the private company gets what they bargained for. One way to make sure that happens is by having a pipe investment, which is private capital that comes in alongside the SPAC money. Now, in some of the cases you're talking about where maybe the pipe wasn't large enough or they were too optimistic about the net cash and trust, the net amount of money that was coming into the business, those companies ended up public and, and barely had enough money to be public, let alone execute on the business plan. And that's where, you know, I kind of think of, you know, maybe it's not bad actors, but it's bad structure. It's, it's a, uh, um, it's uninformed decision at the end. You know, maybe you shouldn't have closed the merger if the merger wasn't bringing you the cash you needed to actually execute in your business plan. Yeah, I can see that. And I and, and I guess, you know, the other part I think of Pipe, aren't they the ones that get the warrants or is that the original investors who get a warrant to buy more? So it, it can be negotiated for sure with the Pipes, but in the, in the past, in the 2020 and 2021, you know, boom cycle, the pipe investors were generally not receiving warrants. The warrants were generally uh, provided to the IPO investors. And, you know, an IPO investor that gives you $10 and, and is going to wait a year or two to know if that $10 will be invested in something interesting, they were being paid a warrant for the time value of money of, of you know, giving the $10 to the trust account and kind of waiting for a choice sometime in the future. And that's really what the warrant was, was designed to compensate. Vince, can you help us understand a little bit the the regulatory framework and some of the changes that that are coming, uh, really following the big boom in SPACs, the frenzy, if you will? Yeah, sure. Look, look regulators like um, orderly 
capital markets. They like good disclosure. They like market participants to know the risk and, and rewards of what investment decisions they're making. Uh, they look to, in, in my opinion, they look for opportunities to um, limit speculation. And as we talked earlier, you know, there are a lot of market participants in the SPAC world that in some ways were not fundamental investors. And I, I think efforts by regulators to make sure people know what they're buying and know the risks they're assuming and companies uh, are reminded that you know being public is a, a tremendous responsibility and they need to follow through on that. All of those things are very good for both the, the public capital markets as well as the SPAC industry as a whole. You know, we, we are, I, I, I never like to use winners and losers, but I've got to use something like that, uh, you know, to describe where we are with SPACs today. There are going to be some that are successful. There are some that we've already seen evidence of a failure. What is it that determines the winners and the losers? I'm going to give up and just say it. It's a great question, Alan. I, I think of that answer and what comes to mind is a four-quadrant box. Across the top is the quality of business. Across the side is the quality of management. And there's some clear winners that had a great business and a great management team. Uh, you know, part of the advantage of the SPAC is you can raise a lot of money all at once and still retain at the public company board level control your business. And in those cases, investors did well, SPAC investors did well, management teams and, and the private company investors that owned the company before it merged and went public all did well. Uh, and, and those are great examples. And this is a tremendous moment in time for investment in this decarbonization and energy transition sector. I think, unfortunately, you know, there are businesses that maybe weren't quite ready to be public or uh, didn't have the, the quality of management team they needed to kind of transition from successful private company and a successful public company. Uh, and, and there's certainly some examples of, of people that ended up in kind of the opposite end of that four-quadrant box. And the question is, what are they going to do to, to uh, work their way out of it? Um, you know, in this space, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity, but uh, there's also going to be people that, that don't get the job done. And we've seen some some examples already, and in, in the case of uh, one, uh, you know, one SPAC actually buying another uh, stock deal with Nicola and Romeo. We've we've seen a few that uh, you know have gone all the way to bankruptcy liquidation. One anyway that's gone bankruptcy liquidation, and others that have you know done uh, other capital raising things like you know at the market type uh, fundraising and, and things like that to to keep enough money coming in to to keep the business bank going. I mean, we're, we've seen all of that. We've seen a variety of those things. Let me ask you, though, what about some of these other alternatives like direct listing, private equity financing, uh, even the small company focused options like Regulation A and Reg CF, you know, things that we've seen and written about in, in certain places, um, SPAC alternatives or what are those? I think it's fair to call them SPAC alternatives. You know, SPAC is an alternative to a tr traditional IPO. It's it's generally faster and it can generally raise more money. Um, and you're you're inserting a, a SPAC sponsor and management team to separately do a level of diligence that uh, an institutional investor might not be able to do on their own in a traditional IPO process in the time that they're allowed to do that work. You know, IPOs are tension typically launched and days later priced and, and days later closed. In a SPAC process, it can be months of due diligence and underwriting. In some of the other types of listings you're talking about, uh, there's, there's kind of features that are unique to each. In some cases, the company's not raising money like a direct listing. Uh, it might just be 
existing shareholders of the company that are listing their shares to trade in the markets, but the company wouldn't receive proceeds. Uh, in some of the others, uh, the company might receive proceeds, but the listing process might be different. Um, th- there's a variety of ways of bringing capital into a business. And um, you know, I, I think I would say this way is uh, there's, there's a huge need for capital in this space. Uh, there's tremendous opportunity for investment returns on good investments. And people find a way to capitalize their business. Sure. Well, this this is fascinating. We could do another half hour. Uh, I don't imagine that our audience wants us to, but what a great overview this has been. It's been great to uh, catch up on some of these things. Again, we don't write as frequently about SPACs as we did a year ago, but they're still out there. And, uh, you know, we, we know that it's a big part of, as you said, the decarbonization and the electrification, maybe even uh, autonomous vehicles, ultimately. So thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Folks, we're going to continue with the full day here of uh, fireside chats to follow. We've got uh, we've got a number of great guests ahead. If you registered, you know who's coming, and we hope you'll stick around all day with us. It, it, it is going to be a lot of fun. So thank you very much. And again, Vince, thanks for being with us. Alan, thank you for your time. It's great talking with you.